Okay. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. And uh, I'm glad you're here. Good group today. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful day. I don't know. I'm not even a springtime person. I, you can't believe it. I love a winter, but you cannot deny a day like today it is so, so wonderful. Um, we are in the second chapter of John. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 2. We're going to be uh, talking from uh, verses 13 through 25. I want to uh, make uh, you aware of a couple things. First of all, the next four Sundays, we will be covering John 3 and uh, verses 1 through 20-something. And I, I won't be preaching all of these. I want to urge you to be here. Not because I'm a great preacher, because these are great scriptures. These are scriptures that will touch our hearts. Bring somebody with you. These are some of the most profound passages in the whole Bible that we'll be covering in the next four weeks. And I urge you to be here. Come prayed up. Come ready to learn and to listen. And, and so that you can see these great passages. Today we're going to, we're going to talk about Jesus being, Jesus revealed. Um, I, I want to read this passage with you and, and I want to talk to you about it. I, AJ, we had some beautiful music today. Didn't we, church? Wasn't that great music today? It's about worship. And we're going to talk about worship. We're going to talk about it not from the positive, but from the negative. And and you've seen the positive. But we're going to talk about worship. But we're going to talk about more. We're going to learn about Jesus through this great passage. John 2, 13 through 25. The Jewish Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple complex, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple complex with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, what sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, destroy this sanctuary and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, this sanctuary took 46 years to build and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture. And the statement that Jesus had made. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many trusted in his name. When they saw signs, when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anybody to testify about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Father, thank you for your word. Speak clearly to us today through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you are a C.S. Lewis fan. If you like his readings, I encourage you, if you like to read, uh, C.S. Lewis writes theology and, and nonfiction, but he also writes fiction. And one of his fictional, uh, books is, um, is an account that I want to read. I found it in a commentary that I have on John, an excerpt here. It's called Voyage of the Dawn Traitor. Traitor. And it touches on this passage of scripture. And I think we want, I want to just share it with you because it gives us an idea of how Christ is, is contrasted in the scriptures. Um, 
Lucy and Edmund are the main characters, and they are engaged in their adventure when they come to a large, grassy expanse. The sensuous green of the grass spreads off into the blue horizon, except for a little white spot in the middle of the pasture. As Edmund and Lucy look at this spot intently, they have difficulty making out what it is. Being adventurous, they travel across the grass until finally the white spot comes into full view. It is a lamb. The lamb, white and pure, is cooking a fish for breakfast. The author, C.S. Lewis, is probably basing the passage on the imagery of John 21. We find Jesus cooking a fish breakfast for his disciples. The white lamb is the Christ figure, of course. The lamb gives Lucy and Edmund the most delicious breakfast they've ever had. Wouldn't you want Jesus to fix your breakfast? Wouldn't you want that? What a great privilege that had to have been. This ensues a wonderful conversation after the meal, and they talk about how to get to the land of Aslan, or heaven. As the lamb begins to explain the way, a marvelous thing happens. C.S. Lewis records it. His snowy white flushed into tawny gold. His size changed, and he was God Aslan himself, towering above them, scattering light from his mane. What a picture. Lewis was illustrating the great truth of our faith. The Lamb of God is a lion. In biblical terms, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Qualities that we consider lamb-like are gentleness, meekness. They're indeed every bit of Christ. But so are the regalness and the ferocity of a lion. The book of Revelation speaks of the wrath of the Lamb in chapter 6. This passage will study following the beautiful miracle at Galilee and Cana. We have to view this in mind. Jesus had been to a wedding. He changed water to wine when the wine ran out. The message is that the miracle is that the natural joy of life wears out. Our Lord brings new wine, new joys. When the steward tasted the wine, he said it was the finest and the best. That's how it is with the Christian life. The best comes at the end. As we grow in him... The joy in the wine of life becomes more perfect and more satisfying. That's what we said last week. Don't get me wrong. Jesus is meek and mild just like the Bible said he was. Dozens of scriptures testified his gentleness. But that's a concept that's been so overdone that we almost forget the God, the Christ of the Bible. Today we'll see a new aspect of that. Last week we saw a gentle lamb. Today, we'll see the beginnings of a roaring lion. We'll see Jesus in his mission fully displayed. We see a miracle at Cana that he brought joy. And today, we'll see where he upsets the order of the Jewish, of the whole Jewish faith and shows them that a new day is coming for them. So I want to look at this. John gives us a wonderful picture of Jesus. You see what we find in John's gospel already is that he has said that Jesus is the word, that he is the very fulfillment of God's word, the Bible that had been spoken in prophecy. Jesus perfectly fulfilled it. It said that Jesus is the light of the world, that he would bring light to the darkness. That's a theme that John will teach throughout his gospel. He says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And, and boy, that's, that's a, 
That's a theology book right there. Full of grace and truth. Full of grace on one hand, full of truth on the other. We'll see truth today. And we'll see some grace. But we see truth today. And then John was careful to point out that indeed Jesus was the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. He gives us three ways of teaching in this passage. And I want to point them to you. There's really three, there are three main points here. In verse 13, he cleans the temple out. In, in verse, in verse 19, he talks about the overdoing of the temple, the, the new system, the new order through his resurrection. And in verse 23, he talks about the hearts of man. So I want to look at these today. I want you to look at this slide about the temple of Herod that we have up. The temple of Herod was considered one of the most beautiful ancient structures ever built. Now today, if you look to the right of that slide, to your right, the only thing left is the outer wall of that temple. That's all that's left. This was a magnificent structure. Uh, the front was about 1,500 feet. About 15 football fields across the front. The inner court of the temple was where the worship of, of God would occur. And the tall structure right in the center is the Holy of Holies. Our lesson today takes place in the inner court. In the court between the big wall and the inner, and the, the inner structure called the court of the Gentiles. And of course, we see in John's gospel that he's telling us about Passover. The Jewish Passover was near. Passover, of course, celebrated the Jewish celebration that God had delivered them in Egypt from, from the land of Egypt. And so they celebrated every year. And we know that Passover coincides with our Easter because it normally occurs sometime in March and April. And, and if you want to know how that's figured out, ask AJ. He knows because I sure don't know. I could, I have to look every year and find out when Easter is. But it's in the 15th day of Nisan. And the Jewish Passover is always celebrated. It was a great, wonderful feast. Every Jew of that day was required, if they could humanly do it, travel to Jerusalem. And so the roads while Jesus went there would be packed with people, packed with folks to celebrate, headed to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The Passover would be a meal, but it was a big event. Now, now the things that went over in the Passover, it says that uh, in, in the temple complex, Jesus found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he found money changers. Now, what was going on here is that every Jew was required to make a donation to the temple. They had kind of a, a donation schedule based on how much money you made and how much you had, and they expected that you pay that. Now... They said that only Jewish coins could be used. You couldn't come from another country or another province. You couldn't bring Roman coins. You couldn't bring coins from other countries. You could only bring Jewish coins because they were the best quality silver. And so they had an exchange process. They just so happened if you came to the temple and you brought your foreign coins, well, they could exchange them for you. And they had booths set up and they had people there that would exchange your money. And they, of course, charged a fee for that, the exchange of money. And the fee was normally uh, two hours of a daily wage for every half shekel of money. 
half shekel, very small amount of money. Most families would donate one to two shekels in the celebration of the temple. So a person that came there from another country, and many people came from other provinces with other coins, could have to pay up to a day's wage to exchange two shekels of money. I mean, it's a great operation for the Jewish church. I mean, they made a lot of money in the temple. And they made it on on the backs of other people that were giving to God's temple. So there were inside the temple, there were, there were animals, there were all the uh, animals, the oxen, the sheep, the doves that were all there. There were men that inspected them and they would charge a certain rate based on the quality of the animal. The animals had to be unblemished, of course, to be used in Passover, but they had to find that some were more unblemished than others, and therefore some brought a greater fee than others. And so there was uh, outside in the court of the Gentiles, there's great, there's great uh, commercial enterprise going on. There's, there's huckstering and bartering and shouting and yelling. And all of this would be part of the Passover celebration. Of course, that wasn't at all what was a part of the Passover celebration. Passover celebration was a celebration to worship God. So, so really, the, the central part of the worship would be that families would come in and, and, and buy a lamb or a dove if they couldn't afford a lamb and they would, they would slaughter that lamb and eat it for the Passover meal. And, and celebrate what God had done. It was, this was a time of prayer, a time of worship. But it had been turned into a great circus. And that's what Jesus found when he went into the temple. All of these things going on. So Jesus went there. uh, Apparently stormed right into the court of the Gentiles. The Bible says in verse 15, he made a whip out of cords. Now he tied some cords together and made him a whip. And he drove everybody out of the complex with their sheep. Can you imagine this? All this, it's like going to a street scene down here in Walnut Cove and all the vendors set up and Jesus shows up with a quart of whip, starts hitting, pushing over tables, turning, running people out, knocking the fences down, the animals running everywhere. I mean, chaos and bedlam breaks loose in this place. One commentator said Jesus probably looked seven feet tall going around and, and, and wielding the cords and the whip driving people out. And then he said at the end, he said, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. In Matthew's gospel, he tells about a similar instance when Jesus said, you've turned my father's house to a den of thieves. You, you've driven, you've driven God out of this picture entirely. So we see Jesus kind of, this is different from the Jesus that showed up last week at the wedding in Cana and when they ran out of wine, his mom turned to him and said, son, they, they ran out of wine. And Jesus told him to fill the jugs of water up and had the best wine. Here, here you see a whole new kind of Jesus, a whole different picture of him. Verse 17 is really important. And his disciples remember, remembered that it is written Zeal for your house will consume me. Uh, the disciples quoted from Psalm chapter 69 verse 9. If you get a chance, go there and look at it. It's David talking about false worship in the, in the temple of God or in the, in the kingdom of God. And, and so, uh, that verse continues and it says, and the insults of those who insult you follow me. So David is echoing what had happened to Jesus. When people offended the house of God, they offended Jesus. 
That's, that's a powerful thing. You know, I, I thought about this verse this week. And it said that the disciples remembered that it was written. Now, I want you to remember there, the disciples that are with Jesus. These guys were mostly fishermen. They were untrained people. They were working people. You know, they learned the Jewish scripture as well enough to re- quote that scripture. That's amazing. Because when I heard that scripture for the first time, I didn't know where it came from. And I had to go look it up. And because I have a lot of nice commentaries, it showed me exactly where it is and where to go. But these disciples, when they, when they saw this, they said, oh, that makes me think of Psalm 69 verse 9. Of course, they didn't have chapters and verse of Psalm, but they knew that passage came out of Psalms. You know, church, that's why you ought to study the Bible. That's why we ought to be students of the Word of God. Because these men, they pulled up the Scripture. And I thought, well, where did they learn this from? I mean, had Jesus already taught it? Were they disciples under John the Baptist? And John taught them the Scriptures. They had been discipled and trained. And they learned enough about the Scriptures to quote it. That's just kind of a side, but I, I think it's an important one. It's a great thought, though, that we'd be so identified with God, so concerned about what he would do, that we would be offended too. Are we, are we offended at all when God is offended? Are we hurt or are we tarnished or are we just kind of go on? In this picture, we see the, the righteous anger of Jesus. I went back and looked at some other examples in the Gospels. Mark chapter 3 verse 5. The man with a paralyzed hand. And they were questioning him whether Jesus ought to be healing people on the Sabbath. A man with his hand broken and unused came to Jesus on the Sabbath day. And he asked for Jesus to heal him. And the people around him were saying, oh no, you shouldn't be doing that on the Sabbath day. And Jesus said, after looking at them with anger and sorrow at the hardness of their heart, he healed the man. In Luke chapter 13, verse 32, he said about Herod the king, he said, go tell that fox. Or his response to Peter in Matthew 16, out of my sight, Satan. To the Pharisees in the temple, they didn't see the meekness of Christ. They didn't see his mildness and gentleness in Matthew 25 when he said that you, and he pointed at them, you are like whitewashed tombs. Boy, I'll tell you, I've been called a lot of things. But if the Lord looked at me and said, you're like a whitewashed tomb. On the outside, you're pretty and clean. But on the inside, you're full of rotten flesh and decay. That's what he said to him. In verse 33, he continued. He, listen to this. He said, you're snakes. You're broods of viper, vipers. How can you escape being condemned to hell? Wow. The anger of Jesus. I want you to understand that. I want you to recognize that. I want you to hear that. I want you to know that that's part of his nature. That's who he is. He's a righteous judge. His anger is not like my anger. If I get angry, more than likely there's sin and there's my own selfishness. But in Jesus, it's completely holy and righteous. It's absolutely justified. There's no question of guilt. There's, there's no misunderstanding of the situation because he knows all the things that he knows about us. So what was the sin of the money changers? Christ's anger was against the irreverence of the Jews toward God the Father. We see that in a great passage. I, I want you to, and AJ's been 
we've been singing a lot about worship today. I want you to hear what worship was in the Old Testament. I want you to hear how it was experienced. And, and this is in First Kings chapter 8, verse 10. It says, when the priest came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the Lord's temple. And because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering. For the glory, the glory of God filled the temple. How about that? Now, now you say, well, Jim, we, we don't have a temple like they did. No, no, we don't. We don't have a temple like they did because God resided in the Holy of Holies. He, he resided in the, in the temple in that holy place. That's where he was. But God today resides in you and me if you're a believer in Christ. That's where he resides. His spirit is present with us. When we come in here, and, and you don't have to come in here, but, but it's good to come in here. I mean, isn't it great to come into this place and worship and sing and, and you, you're praising God who lives in your spirit. That's what you do. So Jesus, when he tore through the temple, he's tearing through in anger, righteous and holy because people had taken their eyes off of God and were looking at other things. They were worried about making money. They were worried about making a profit. They were worried about getting as many people through their booths as they could. They were worried about who had the best position in there and who could make the most money and who could do the best. And God wasn't even a part of it. Jesus saw right through them. He knew what they were. It's really relevant to our church. Not just First Baptist Walnut Cove, but our church today. You know, we... Come and worship. I talked with a pastor this week and he's greatly burdened because his church is more concerned about what time it finishes than what they do in the middle. A.W. Tozer wrote this book, The Knowledge of the Holy. You ought to read it. I think it's on my list that I gave you. And he writes this in the, in the uh, preface. He says, with our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of all and the consciousness of God's presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience life in the spirit. The words be still and know that I am God mean almost nothing to the self-confident, Bustling worship, worshiper of the 21st century. Our hearts, church, can be just like the hearts of the people in the Gentile court. Even sitting in church, we start talking about what we're going to do tomorrow at work or what the game is today or what we're going to have for lunch or how soon are we going to finish or it's too hot or it's too cold or it's something or he's too loud or he's too soft or I didn't like the music or it's not whatever. We take our eyes off God and we put our eyes on something else. That's the danger. That's what God went after. And, and sometimes uh, we, we can, we can take God and, and we can replace in our worship and it, 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 it affects the way we serve. You know, Proverbs chapter five, verse 14 says, I come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. Solomon said that I come to the brink of utter ruin. In the midst of the assembly, we can sit in church and we can be as far from God as we could ever be. 
We can come here with all the things on our mind, the idea of what we're going to do and all, all that. And we walk out of here and everything that we do is about us. If we're, I, listen, guys, I know because I sat there many years and did just that. But God calls us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And then, and then when we worship Him out of our own selfishness, then that affects the way we serve and what we give. We give out of convenience instead of out of sacrifice. We're unwilling to make sacrifices. We can yawn and check our email and worship. We can wait on the time that it ends and get on with all that we're doing. And our reverence and our spirit of worship is very important because it shows where we put God in our life. And so, when AJ or when I or Jacob or your Sunday school teacher or somebody says we should prepare for worship, then we should prepare for worship. We should come in this place ready to worship God. And, and this isn't the only place that you can worship God. You can worship God anywhere. Uh, I, I learned this when I was in service and our chaplains would come, you know, Keith and, you know, with a, around a pine tree on a Sunday morning at eight o'clock or Whatever time the chaplains would drive through, maybe five o'clock in the afternoon, whenever they got around, and a bunch of soldiers who believed would take their helmets off and sit down and 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 you could worship God right there. That was a sanctuary as grand as Herod's temple. Because it's all in our heart. But you gotta come ready. Jesus attacked the people because they weren't ready. No wonder he wasn't so offended. I want you to look now at the second part of this passage. Of scripture. It says. Of course after Jesus went through there. And shook everything up. Now I want you to just picture the courtyard. I mean everything is turned. The tables are all turned over. Money's all over the ground. Animals running everywhere. People are screaming and hollering. A normal day of making a lot of money. Has been broken into chaos. And so probably the temple police. And some of the leaders. The Pharisees of of, of the Jewish faith. They, they chased Jesus down. And listen to what they said. So what sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? I mean, who are you? What right do you have to do this? I mean, you can imagine how mad they were. Jesus knew their heart. He knew they were mad enough to kill him. Because he said, you destroy the sanctuary and I'll raise it up in three days. Well, now... Nobody that knew Herod's temple would believe that. Herod's temple took 46 years to build. It's made out of solid marble. It, it was, there's stones that were 20 tons in the walls of Herod's temple. It was a grand, mighty, beautiful thing. Herod, the Jews hated him, but he built them a nice temple. 40 years later. That temple would be destroyed. Jesus, before he died, would take his disciples and walk through the temple courtyard, just like he was doing today. He wasn't walking today. He was turning everything. But he would walk through there, and he looked up at the temple, and he said, look at there. He said, not one stone will be left on the other. They were like, you're kidding me. And that's what the, that's what the Jews are saying now. You, you're saying you can build this temple in 36, or in three days, and we built it in 46 years it took us to build this thing. 
Because Jesus is saying the temple is in him. Paul said in Colossians 2.9, For in him the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily, and you have been filled by him as who is the head. In Revelation 21, John would write later on, he said, I did not see a sanctuary in heaven, because the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its sanctuary. In heaven, we won't have a church because God will be our church. That's where we'll worship. We'll worship where he is. We, we worship because God resides in us today. But in heaven, the Bible says he'll live with us and we'll live with him. And he'll light the whole place. There'll never be any darkness. That's what heaven is. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Church, that'll, that just fires me up. So the temple would be destroyed 40 years later. But I'm going to tell you something, church. The cross would make the temple obsolete. The cross would do away with the need for a temple. Because you know, when Jesus died on the cross, what, what happened? Just as he breathed his last on the cross, the sun was dark and there was an earthquake and the veil that separated the Holy of Holies with the rest of the temple that only the high priest went in once a year. The veil, which was four inches thick, I can't even imagine a piece of cloth, four inches thick, about 60 feet high, ripped from top to bottom. Ripped from top to bottom. And there would no longer be a separation between God and man. There would be no reason for a sacrifice because Jesus would once and for all do the sacrifice for sin. There'd be no reason for the priest to go in to the Holy of Holies, to the presence of God, because a believer who trusted Jesus would have access to God anytime they wanted. You, if you're a believer, you have access to God anytime you want. That is amazing. I mean, what does that make you? When you think about that, that's just amazing. That's, that's a powerful thing. The resurrection. Jesus said his resurrection will destroy the whole thing. But he still cleaned his father's temple out. For this time, it was still his father's house and he cleaned it out. Number three. This is the part that bothers me. In verse 23, he, he recognized real versus counterfeit faith. L- listen to what he said. He said, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many trusted in his name. Now, they had heard about what he had done in Cana. I didn't read that out of the Bible, of course, but they, some had heard about what he did in Cana and some had seen what he did in the temple. And I guess, I guess they were so amazed by the display of anger and the fact that the Jews didn't do something to him that day and that, that he stood toe to toe with them and told them exactly what was going to happen to them. That some believed many trusted in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. See, they believed because Jesus was doing stuff. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. He knew their hearts. And because he did not need anybody to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. I, I want you to know something here. I'm not a Greek scholar, and I think most of you know that. But the idea of trusted in verse 23 and entrusted in verse 24 come from the same Greek word. And it basically means to believe. In other words, though they believed in Jesus, Jesus did not believe in them. 
He did not have faith in their faith because they believed in him for the signs. They saw him and they believed there was no love. There was no recognition of who Jesus was. There was no recognition of their own sin. There was no repentance. There was no life change. They just believed. They saw him do something and they said, that's cool. I wish he'd do that for me. I need him. He's like a genie in the bottle. And Jesus said, that's not good enough to have Jesus as a genie in the bottle. And so that's why in, we talk today in our Sunday school class about faith. And so sometimes faith is just taking God at his promise and knowing what God said is true because God said it. And in fact, the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 1, says that faith is the reality of what is not seen. It is the reality. It's not some squishy principle. Because when we are involved in a great trial and the world seems to be going to pieces around us, and all the circumstances of life are weighted against us, we can look back and say, I know exactly who God is. And I know exactly what God will do because he promised it. And therefore, I can be reassured by this. Not reassured by the circumstances. Not reassured because Jesus healed somebody. Or he gave the the folks wine at a wedding. But because they know the promises of God. That's very, very important. So, we have to guard against the same Danger that our faith is intellectual, that we say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I'm really not trusting my life to him. I believe in Jesus, but I'm not going to live for him. I believe in Jesus, but I'm not going to make any sacrifice for him. I do believe in him, though. And understand that the New Testament is clear that even the demons believed in him. But they didn't trust him. Even the demons believed Jesus knows her heart. When you, when you and I come in here, he, he knows my heart. I don't have to, I don't have to confess to you because he knows. And so I encourage you when you come into this place every day to, to pray and ask God to, to cleanse your heart, to give you the strength to focus on his word, to look past the preacher, look past the, the choir, look past all the imperfections and to find Christ in the middle of that. And that's what he'll do. That's the great, that's the great thing that we have with him. And because as God of the universe, he's worthy. He's worthy of all that we have. I'm going to close that. I got a scripture that I want to, I want to read to you. This is worship. And, uh, I was, uh, looking, I've been looking all week for this passage of scripture. And, uh, I looked, uh, and all, uh, the, I looked at several dozen scriptures about worship. And I was just reading through the book of Philippians on my own uh, Friday evening, and I saw this. And Paul writes this, and I said, ha-ha, this is it. Paul writes, and this, this is worship. Listen, listen to this, church. Chapter 3, verse 7. I'm going to read it to you. I could preach a whole sermon on it. I'm not going to preach it. I'm just going to read it to you let you see it. Paul writes, he says, but everything that was gained to me... I have considered to be lost because of Christ. Paul looked at his whole life and he said, my standing before God is that everything that I consider good, I consider a loss. More than that, I also consider everything to be 
loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Church, this is a great prayer for you and me to get up every morning and say, Lord, would you, would you impress upon my heart to, to consider everything to be a loss underneath having Christ as my Lord and Savior? That's putting Him first in your life. Because of Him, Paul writes, I have suffered the loss of all things and I consider them filth. The word for that is human dung. Filth. He considers everything that he lost and gave up because of the gospel. And, and I'm going to tell you, you don't get there by Bible study. You don't get there by being a preacher. You don't get there by being a deacon or teaching a Sunday school class or sitting in a church pew all your life. You get there when the Spirit of God teaches that in your heart. That's how you get there. And then you realize he's more important than everything else. So that I may gain Christ... And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. Paul knew that he was absolutely dependent on Jesus for his salvation. He knew that he didn't have anything that God needed or wanted or could use. And the only thing of value that he had was his faith. And his faith had made him righteous. Church, that is exactly what Jesus does for us. Our faith makes us righteous before God. My goal, now now listen, in verse 10, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. So Paul said, my goal in life, my goal in life is to know him like that, is to know who he did and what he's done for me. And that's worship. When when you know that in your heart, when God has put that in your heart, you know that. I wondered how these three passages of Scripture, these almost disconnected passages of Scripture tied together. And it's it's really like salvation. This is how they do it. The cleansing of the temple shows how God hates sin and impurity in our life. He, he does. He hates it. He hates it in my life. Hates in your life. It, it can disrupt the, the fellowship that we have with him. It, it, it can change and alter the relationship that we have with God. But then, but then the resurrection, the second scene shows us that God gives us new life in Christ through his death and resurrection. Jesus said that when he's resurrected, the old temple can be destroyed and we won't need another temple because he's made it right once and for all for us. And the third one, The third one says that Christ knows our heart regardless of what we say or what we do. When I walk up here, God knows my heart. He he knows everything about me. And you know what's so remarkable, church, is that he knows everything about me and he loves me. In fact, the Bible says that he's pursued me. He's come after me. He's He has desired to have fellowship with me. He gave his son for my sin. And for your sin. He put his spirit into our life so that we can walk with him every day. He granted us access to the throne of God. That's what he's done for us. Church, I I hope that falls on your heart. Because that's the power of Christ. That's the real Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We need it in our worship, in our life, 
in all that we do. Lord, draw us closer to you. May, may that be the goal in our life, to know you and the unsurpassing value of faith in Christ. God, touch our hearts. If there's one that doesn't believe today, I pray you'll touch them. If there are others that need to change their life and, and, and start again, Lord, you open that opportunity for us and uh, use us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.